you have your copy of the scriptures, I'm going to invite you to turn to Romans 13 this morning. Familiar book to us, but we're going to a different passage today. Romans 13, on this last Sunday of 2021, I want to preach to you about it's time to wake up, okay? Um, Now, I do realize a truism that when a pastor puts someone to sleep, it's his responsibility to wake them up, okay? So I do take that as a responsibility of mine, Um, but I'm not really referring to the sluggishness that might be apparent on the day after Christmas in church, One of the most familiar stories in American folklore is Washington Irving's, written in 1820, famous Rip Van Winkle. Set in colonial America, it's the story of a man who lives in a small village at the foot of the Caskills, and one day, Rip wanders up into the mountains with his dog and his rifle. He runs into a group of strange Dutchmen. I'm not saying that all Dutchmen are strange, but these were. Rip enjoyed a stiff drink, and all of a sudden, he went to sleep for 20 years. As you can imagine, when Rip wakes up, he discovers some shocking changes. His dog was gone. His gun was rusted. His beard had become incredibly long. His house is in complete disrepair as he goes back into the village. His wife and children are gone. Finds out his wife has actually already passed away. There's no one living in the town that remembers Rip, according to the the little short story. They'd either moved out of town or they had died. And as he goes back into the tavern, he finds that there was a picture of King George III right before he went to sleep for 20 years. But now that picture was no longer there. It was a picture of George Washington. He had slept through the revolution. And the rights of citizens were being talked about in town, and they were talking about elections and members of Congress and liberty in Bunkers Hill. And they were asking, is he Federalist or Democrat? He'd had a 20-year nap, and all sorts of things had changed. You know, our scripture this morning actually indicates that believers can become so sluggish that they're not awake that they're taking a spiritual nap, that they become lethargic and lazy, and that this is a real issue. You know, it's not only a real issue that Paul deals with in Romans 13, it's actually an issue that is dealt with in the Old Testament with God's people, Israel, and also comes up quite often in the New Testament. In fact, one of my favorite passages, and I'm going to use it as a theme this morning, found in Ephesians 3.14, is, Awake, O sleeper! Can you say that with me? Awake, O sleeper! It applies to you right now. Awake, O sleeper. What does it look like when a believer becomes lethargic, sleepy, lazy? Well, look at the passage with me found in Romans chapter 13, verse 11. It says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, I think you know this about the book of Romans. I've mentioned it to you before, but Paul traditionally, when he would write his letters, would have the doctrine first, the application next. That's a good rhythm, actually, for us to get in as believers. 
Sometimes we try to rush too quickly to, here's how I can apply it to my life before we fully understand the teaching, the doctrine, the theology. In Romans, he really front ends it with 11 chapters of doctrine, the doctrine of the glorious gospel. And then from chapters 12, that very familiar transition, therefore, by the mercies of God, I beg you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. He starts the application side of the book of Romans, and here in chapter 13, we have that again. So he's applying to these believers. I, I want you to know he's not talking to unbelievers here. He, he's saying there's a real possibility for Christians to be asleep, to be sleepwalking, to be in almost a hypnotic state, or to have sedatives, sleep aids, tranquilizers, uh, melatonin. Uh, this is the possibility of believers to have this spiritually. What does that look like? Well, just listen to some of the warnings in the Old Testament. Hosea eleven seven, the Lord speaks of his people. He says, my people are bent on turning away from me. That there was this tendency of God's people to draw near, but then to turn, to, 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 to turn right at the last moment. Amos 6.1 says that there are those that are at ease in Zion. Of course, he's referring to Jerusalem. He's referring to the temple. He's referring to where the people of God gathered. And he said they're sitting there where God dwells with his people casually, not engaged, not alert, as though something boring was taking place. Then you get to the New Testament and you hear passages like this. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right and do not go on sinning. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. Don't sleep as others do. And then this one that I've quoted from, Ephesians 5, 14. Awake, O sleeper. Now I realize very clearly that the Sunday after Christmas is the most difficult moment for us to stay awake for us to stay engaged. So I, 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 I planned this sermon title, everything I planned. It was, it was intentional, no, um, sort of. But, but I have planned a very easy outline to try to keep you awake. And, and this is one that I would hear from my parents. It was, it was in three phrases, all with exclamation points. It was, get up, get dressed, and get moving. Okay? That, that really is the outline of this passage. Get up, get dressed, get moving. All right? So you're going to find that here, and so I want to start with get up. What does it look like for us to be asleep spiritually, to wake up? Well, I could ask you a few questions. Maybe I could ask you this question. Was there a time that you remember, maybe even in the near, the near past, where your desire for the Bible was much greater than it is right now? You know the answer to this. I don't. How long can you go? without reading your Bible, without it bothering you. Not in a guilt sense, but, but, but like you're really hungry. You, you need the nourishment. Was there a time in your Christian life where when you sinned against the Lord, and maybe that area where you most often sin against the Lord, there was immediate conviction. Your, your conscience was pierced. It, it almost hurt, and, and it was internal, and, and you just wanted to be right with God, and it bothered you. That once again you've chosen to serve self rather than Christ. But now you can sin and it doesn't bother me like it used to. It doesn't cause me to feel the pains of conscience that once I felt. Do you remember a time where you were very conscious about 
the unbelieving family members or friends or coworkers that God was providentially putting in your life and, and you were praying that God would give you those providential moments, those sovereign moments to share the good news with them, but now you can be around unbelieving people all the time and, and the thought never crosses your mind. Again, I'm not trying to inspire guilt. I'm trying to inspire reflection. What does it look like to be lethargic spiritually? I want to also challenge you that there are certain demographics that struggle with this more than others. As you study the, the big stories in the Bible, you notice that, that more often than not, people that have been saved a long time or have walked with the Lord a long time are more tempted to go to sleep spiritually than those that are newly saved. In fact, we often note that when someone just is born again, they have zeal and they have fire and they have a, a fire in their belly we talk about. They have this zeal to serve the Lord and to share the good news. Sometimes not with all the discernment that we would want them to have, but the zeal's there. John says in his letters to the churches in Revelation that the church in Ephesus actually used to have a love that they no longer had. They had actually left their first love but their doctrine was impeccable. He says to the church at Ephesus, he says, you're doing all the right things, you're teaching all the right things, but you don't have that first love. So that's what it looks like. So let's look at this first phrase that I would hear from time to time from my mom. Get up, wake up. It says, wake up, it's time to wake up. You'll notice he starts this in verse 11 and he says, besides this. Now, that, those two words are to help us, and I wanna help you for a moment. I don't want to rip this passage out of context and have a little neat sermon about waking up and you not know what the rest of the passage is about. You should always ask, what is the rest of the context about? And that's a great question. You'll notice in verse 8, he's talking about loving one another. He says that the whole second tablet of the commands can be summarized in one word, love. He says, owe no one anything except to love them. He says, love does no wrong to his neighbor. And then he says in verse 11, besides this, or in addition to this, one of the ways to help motivate us, okay, great, answer. Maybe, maybe. Oh, don't look now, but they've started giving me messages on the confidence screen. I love this. <laughs> we worked on that in staff meeting the other day. Can you guys give me messages back there when something's happening? Not sure, everything's off. I'm sorry, the last thing I was supposed to do was bring attention to it, so I... Where was I at in the text? Get up, wake up, wake up. It's time to wake up. So the context here is add to your love or the way you can love one another the way you should love one another is besides this, know the time. You gotta know what time it is. You see that in verse eight? Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. So he's saying to the Romans, and this is always another good question to ask when you're trying to interpret your Bible correctly. What did the original readers understand? Paul is not saying you know the time and they're sitting at home or they're hearing it read in their local church going, we don't know what the time is. What's he talking about? 
They, they did know what he was talking about. He assumes that. So what we have to do in 2021 is ask, what was he talking about? They knew it, but we're not sure we know it. Because when I say to you, East Brandywine, do you know the time? You should be awake. You should be engaged right now. No spiritual lethargy because you know the time. Your question should be, what time is it? Right? So what was he referring to? Well, he says, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Here's how you know the time. For salvation is what? Nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Now, there are two Greek words for time that are often used in our Greek New Testament. One is the word kairos, which is this one, and another is chronos. When you hear chronos, you should think chronology, right? So that's talking about sequential time, right? Chronos. This kairos actually is not referring to necessarily points in time. Many people come to this passage and say the primary emphasis here is the second coming of Jesus. That Jesus could come back at any moment. Now, is that true? Amen. Maranatha, come back, Lord Jesus. Come now. Wouldn't that be awesome? Praise the Lord. But that's not what I believe is being spoken about here. He doesn't use the word chronos in terms of point in time. He's using a very more general word that says the right time or the newness of time. This is the time period. It's kind of a section of time, not really marked off in chronology. So what is he referring to? He says, well... Your salvation is nearer today than when you believed. And then he uses an expression. He says, the darkness is still here, but we've, we can see the dawn coming up. What I've mentioned to you before, not only me, but other pastors here in teaching you the word, what he, I believe he's referring to here is what they understood, and he'd already spoken to them about earlier in the book, is that when Jesus Christ was born, when he became incarnate, when he died on the cross and he rose from the dead on the third day, the Lord Jesus broke into history, yes? And the kingdom, as we're told, was ushered in. But that's what we refer to as the already but not yet, okay? It's kind of no man's land. You can think of it this way. It's living in the overlap of the two errors, the eras, not errors, eras, two time periods. This time period before Christ entered, before he became incarnate, before he died on the cross, before he dealt with sin, and the not yet. Because do we still see darkness? Yes or no? Is the world still broken? Do you still struggle with sin? So, so we know we're kind of in this overlap. When I was a youth pastor, I, I had the opportunity, I guess privilege would be the word, I don't know, one of them, we would drive teens through the night to camp, some in North Carolina and some years we'd go to Wisconsin. We'd have four buses filled with teens and we would drive through the night and we had enough CDL drivers so after so many hours you'd go into sleeper berth and then you'd be right back at the wheel. The shift that I hated the most was that 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. shift. Now I don't know if this is true scientifically or not. But it seemed to me that right before the dawn, right before the sun would rise, it was the darkest. At least it was the most difficult to stay awake. Because at that moment, it seemed like it was the darkest of the whole night in all the driving shifts. But then the dawn came. What he's using is he's using an illustration to say that the darkness was dealt with in completion when Christ died on the cross. What did he say? It is finished. 
However, salvation is always in three tenses. You'll see the word here, salvation. He says your salvation is what? Nearer than when you what? We often think of our salvation in one tense. We think of our salvation this way. My salvation was when I asked Jesus to save me, when I was born again, whatever that date is for you. If you remember the date, I was saved, as I understand it, on July 3rd, 1985. Sometimes we think of salvation just in one tense, what happened in the past. But the scriptures don't describe our salvation just in the past. It actually describes it in three tenses. The past, when you were called by the Lord and you repented of your sin and placed faith in Jesus Christ. You believed. Then there's the present tense. So there's the salvation that rescued us from the penalty of sin. Amen? No hell, no more wrath, no more judgment. All of that was dealt with on the cross. Yes? But then there's also this salvation that's in the present. And what we're told is that sanctification. That right now the Holy Spirit is saving you and me from the power of sin progressively. Now we all wish that it was a point in time just like justification, but it's not. And then there's the ultimate future salvation. That's what we call glorification when we're just like Jesus. Yes? Amen? We're looking forward to that day. This is referring to that future moment. He's saying you're in the middle of your salvation. You're in the overlap of the two ages. The age of darkness, but Jesus has broken in by his death on the cross, by his incarnation, his death on the cross, his resurrection. And ultimately, you're going to be glorified, full salvation. Knowing the time, it ought to make you wake up. It's not just that we say to our kids, wake up, get dressed, get moving, because you're going to miss the bus. This is not as much about chronology as you understand that salvation has already come. And the glorious consummation of your salvation is just ahead. That ought to free you to love others more. Because now you understand the big picture, the big story of the gospel that your salvation is awaiting you. It's almost here. He basically gives us two points here, and he gives this to two different groups of people. Maybe you're in both categories. It should give you hope and motivation to love better because, number one, you realize that even if you're suffering right now, it's almost over. You're in the darkness right now, and some of us are very aware of the darkness right now more than ever. Maybe it is because you're in a tortured marriage or you experience the breaking of divorce or maybe it is disease or maybe it's just the loneliness that you are constantly facing and dealing with and you realize I'm in the darkness still even though I, I've been rescued in Christ, I'm still in the darkness. This is supposed to tell you that this darkness is about to break. And the reason why you should be free to love others instead of being consumed with your suffering is knowing that, that it's about to dawn. You know, recently I, I, I purchased, I don't like running in the cold. There were moments in my life where I would run in gyms and on treadmills during the cold because I just despise the cold weather um, and running in it. And it's just me. I don't enjoy it. So not long ago, I bought one of these headlamps that was supposed to give me some vision while I'm running um, at, in, when it's still dark in the morning hours. 
Um, and I've used it to some good effect and some not so good effect. But, but nevertheless, the best sight in the morning is when I've, I still need my headlamp, but, but I'm seeing the sun start to rise. Because I know, you know what, I'm about to take this thing off. I'm going to turn it off, and I'm going to be able to see where I'm going. And what he's saying here is, is that all the suffering of this broken world, that's still the darkness, it's that overlap, it's almost over. And why you should be engaged and why you should be awake is you know that the, the, the dawn has already broken in and the full light is coming. But we are like the psalmist, and I think this is a right cry from every now and then. We just say, Lord, how long? I, I know you're almost coming, and we're almost about to enjoy that salvation, that completion. But how long, O oh Lord? In Psalm 13, the psalmist says four times, how long, how long, how long, how long? He doesn't get an answer. But I do want to remind you that sometimes we can become cynical, even as believers, about the length Remember in 2 Peter, this was actually what the scoffers were doing. They were saying, you know what? He's not coming back. I mean, he hasn't come back in all these years. He's not coming back. Now, at that time, we're only talking about 30 years. He's not coming back. And, and what does Peter say? He says, you know what? You're really wrong in your judgment. The people before the flood said the same thing. He said, you don't understand this principle that with God, one day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. So folks, again, I don't want to press that numerology too far beyond its original intent, but if you just do the math, it's only been a couple days since Jesus left. And I don't want to say that to be sarcastic or, or frivolous, but we know, according to 2 Peter 3.9, there's a reason why he hasn't returned. And it's because he's patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The heart of God is exposed by why he hasn't returned and why it hasn't had full day. There's some of us, though, that it's not just the suffering, it's the incompletion of our salvation. You'll notice here he says your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. Now, again, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that by your salvation not being complete that you were somehow not completely saved by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. We are completely born again and completely washed of our sins and completely justified when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? What I'm talking about is that present salvation that isn't complete yet. And some of us, maybe you're like me. This week as I was reflecting on this passage and I was reflecting on my year of 2021, I was discouraged in some ways when I realized there are certain sin habits and certain proclivities in my life that instead of making progress in 2021 in sustainable, measurable ways that look like Jesus, I feel like I've regressed. You ever moments like that where you're like, Lord, when will I grow? When will I change? When will I become more like your son? And sometimes we feel the weight of that regression or the lack of growth or we're not growing as fast as we want to spiritually. But we do know this. We're closer to the ultimate glorification than we were yesterday. You are. I ought to get an amen there. You're, you're one day closer. You're one day closer. I love those lines to the hymns. We'll be saved to sin no more. Praise God. I will never have to apologize for my angry spirit or tone. I'll never have to apologize again for my sinful, bitter thoughts. All of those sins that so easily beset us 
will be saved to sin no more. And so what this is supposed to do is free you to love other people because you realize it's dark still right now, but, but it's dawning. It, we're closer now than yesterday. And we're much closer than when we believed in Christ. So wake up, get up. Secondly, get dressed. Take your pajamas off. And in this sense, I don't want you to think of Christmas pajamas and cute pajamas. I want you to think of pajamas as, as sinful, okay? I know that's a hard metaphor for us to, to imagine. But he's saying that these, this is, these are the garments of the past life. He uses this language in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 as well. Look at it with me. He says, not only should you be excited that the day is about to dawn, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. He later says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's using imagery of garments. And he uses three categories of pairs. Three pairs, I should say. You'll notice this in the text. He's going to deal with sin in three categories. Think of three drawers. Now, I don't want us to think, when I read these and explain them, you may say, well, I don't struggle with any of those. I guess I'm doing well. He's given us examples of categories. So here are the first two. He says, orgies and drunkenness. Here, here he is dealing with substance abuse of any kind. He's dealing with the attempt to circumvent the brain from the body and to have an exit and a release from reality. That breakage was never intended to be. And he says this is a category of sinful practice that represents the old wardrobe those clothes you shouldn't be wearing anymore. He gives a second category, sexual immorality. And here he deals with both sexual immorality, porneia, and debauchery, which is just the whole thing that feeds the thoughts and feeds the contemplations and feeds the imaginations. He, he's saying all of that is the old wardrobe. So in this general word, porneia, he's dealing with every type of of sexual vice or sin outside of the covenant of marriage. And then he deals with another category, dissension and jealousy. So now we have substance abuse, sexual immorality, and then social tension. Here he's referring to those sins of the spirit that no one except the Lord really knows about. I mean, you can be jealous and envious and bitter, and it may be a while before that root kind of comes up, right? But he's saying this is a category. These are all the old clothes. Don't wear those anymore. So I want you to think of it almost as if we use the clothes illustration. He's saying put those old pajamas off, the pajamas of sin. Put them aside and wear the new wardrobe. I want you to imagine that you have this big, humongous walk-in closet in your house. Some of you have those. They're big enough to be another bedroom. You know it. But you got this big walk-in closet at home. You walk in that big walk-in closet, and here on the shelf are all the clothes of B.C., before Christ. What he's done here is he's given us these three categories, but we can broaden this. But he's saying, think about these three categories. Are there any of those outfits? Again, we're not talking literal outfits here. But are there any of those outfits that would be characterized as the old life? would be characterized of what life was like before Christ. Throw them out. Don't take them to goodwill. Don't give them to a friend. Burn them. 
Kill them is what we're told later on. Kill the works of the flesh. Mortify them. Don't cage them. Mortify them. Get rid of them. Take them off. So again, pajamas is not a good metaphor here for us. Coming out of Christmas where everybody's taking pictures of their family in pajamas, okay? But, but pajamas here are any of the old clothes that represent being asleep. Because the world is in darkness and they are fast asleep. I mean, they're like those who are jumping out of airplanes and skydiving and they're thinking this is the thrill of a lifetime and the air at 100 miles an hour is coming through their fingers and through their clothes and they're like, this is so fun, but they don't realize they don't have a parachute on. They will end in eternal damnation without Christ. But the problem is we have Christians that are out there skydiving with them like there's, no, there's nothing to live for besides the present. We've got the same attire on you know now that we have our ticket Jesus saved me I asked him into my heart I prayed that prayer I can live like I did in BC I can wear all the same outfits what about 2 Corinthians 5 17 it says anybody who is in Christ is a what a new creature all things have passed away behold all things have become new Folks, it's time to wake up and to go through your wardrobe and take the clothes that represent the past life and burn them. And then he says, put on new garments. But I, I want you to see the, 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 the contrast here. Maybe this helps us with a little bit of the metaphor. You got pajamas over here that represent the sinful lifestyle. And he says, instead of putting on nice, good clothes, you know, you know professional or business casual, he doesn't say business casual. He says put on the armor. I was going to mention it's like people going to work in their pajamas, but that's kind of a thing now. So I, I, I don't think that metaphor helps us either. But, but maybe this one will help. It's like military people going to war in their pajamas. And, and that, that one's a metaphor that goes, that's weird. And, and what he's saying here is, is don't go to battle dressed in your old garments. And so he mixes the metaphors here. He says, put off those old works, but, but now you're going into battle. You, you are parachuting into enemy lines. So later on, you need to have the Lord Jesus Christ clothed on you. He's your protector. He's your parachute. He's the one that can rescue. So get dressed. And what he's saying here is put off, but then put on. In Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, he tells us about putting on the new garments and real quickly, what that means is putting on the garments that reflect the Christ-like one who we're being created into as new creatures. Colossians chapter 3 says that now we're being renovated to be made back into the image of our creator, Jesus Christ. So what new garments do you need to hang in a prominent place to be worn tomorrow and on Tuesday and every day of 2022? For some of us, that glory, being changed from glory to glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18, is, is you have no patience with anyone. Except for yourself. Maybe you don't even have that. And, and you need to see the Lord, the Spirit of God, make you a patient person. For some of us, it is a heart and a mind filled with lust. For some of us, it is bitterness. For some of us, it is substance abuse. For some of us, it's a complete critical spirit, never any gratitude. 
totally unlike Jesus. It's all the wardrobe of the past life. And what we need to do is start placing in that wardrobe righteousness and gentleness and meekness and joy and love and allowing the Spirit of God to transform us where that fruit is demonstrated in our lives. So, get up, wake up, get dressed, finally, get moving. What does that look like? Well, he says here, not only do we need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I believe that he, he adds to that, not only in an and and a conjunction motif, but he's saying this is what it looks like. We put on the characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we're still in this time period. Everybody listen. We know what time it is, right, East Brandywine Baptist Church? I'm not asking you if it's at 1142. We know the time period we live in. We live in the already but not yet. And because we live in the already but not yet, we realize that even though I'm putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, I still struggle with what? I have something flammable inside of me, and you do too. Did you hear me? Your sin nature has not been eradicated. I wish I could say to you it had. That time period hasn't come yet. The dawn's coming, but you have something, I have something inside of me that's flammable, that's magnetized to that which God tells me not to do, not to think, and not to say. Do you recognize that flammability in your heart? You almost feel like you need like a, like a warning label. Flammable, <laughs> right? right? That there's something flammable inside of me. I'm attracted to things I shouldn't be. My heart is prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. So what do I do to participate with the Lord Jesus as I put him on. Well, he says, make no provision for the flesh, and I want to end it here, to gratify its desires. Flesh here is not referring to our humanness. It's referring to our fallenness. It's referring to the old man that will not be eradicated. It's been given a death blow on the cross, but will not be completely eradicated until we're glorified. That's why we see in Galatians 5, there's this battle between the spirit and the flesh. So what do we do? He says, don't make any provisions for it. That word provision means no forethought. It's a very picturesque word. It can be used like the one in Galatians about a military platform where you have a location where you use it as a launching pad to make an attack. But this one has the word of, of, of thinking forward. Don't think forward. Don't strategize. Don't imagine yourself having the opportunity to fulfill the desires of the flesh. Don't make any plans. In fact, eradicate the plans. Make it difficult. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. If your right hand offends you, what do you do? Cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Now, he was not talking about amputating, amputating parts of our body. He was giving us the spiritual principle of radical amputation. That we want to be right with God and we want to be ready to love and we want to be ready for the, the dawning and the full light of our salvation so that we are in the battle. We've got the armor of light on. And as we do that, three things are required for us to sin and we want to rid ourselves of these. Here they are, real quickly. We will often fall into temptation when these three things are true. If they're not all true, we usually will not. Availability of the sin anonymity of the sin. In other words, no one will know 
And finally, the appetite. If you don't have all three, you probably will not sin. Think about that. If a sin that is available, and I could do it and no one know, but I don't have an appetite for it, I'm probably not going to sin. Or if I have the appetite for it, I really want it, and I have the anonymity, but it's not available, I'm probably not going to sin. So in terms of practical sanctification, I want to encourage you, how do you get things out of your wardrobe? Well, number one, you get rid of the availability. <laughs> okay? So, so if you've got, and I'm sure you have some, in your wardrobe, the old life garments, get rid of them, make them no longer available to you. For some of you, that's going to be passwords, filters on a computer. For some of you, it's going to be changing some friendships that have caused you to constantly fall into the old lifestyle. For some of you, it's going to be prioritizing being in the house of the Lord and worshiping with God's people and not allowing all the other frivolities of life that keep making you drowsy. You're putting them away. You're not making them available anymore. For some of us, we need to get rid of the anonymity. We need to tell a brother, tell a sister, I have this struggle. I need help. I need somebody else in my life to speak truth to me. But how do we change the appetites? That's the one part we don't have any complete control over. And yet we do. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure. As we cooperate with the Spirit of God, and we use the means of grace, his word and prayer and fellowship with God's people, what happens is our wanter begins to change. I'm not saying that you're going to get to the point in this Christian life before the dawn and the full light happens and we get our full glorification that you will no longer struggle, but what you do find is the appetites begin to change. As our appetites for Christ and our appetites for the Word and our appetites for worship begin to be the longings of our heart, it replaces this inordinate affection. So folks, awake! Oh, sleeper, get up, get dressed, and let's get going. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has broken in in time and history. And the darkness is dissipating. And we can see the sun coming up. And we can't wait, Lord, until our Lord Jesus returns and we are saved to sin no more. But Lord, we acknowledge that we're not there right now. We know the time, and we live in that overlap. We live in that no man's land of still struggling with the darkness, suffering in the darkness, longing for the light, but knowing that victory's already been won. And we pray that in the joy of that knowledge of the time, that we would be free to love one another as we ought and that we would put off the garments of the old life and begin to wear more regularly these garments of Christ's likeness. And we pray this for his glory. Amen. Let's stand and sing.